Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. There's one house in particular over the last couple of months that stood out as being more constructive than the rest. It's been Morgan Stanley, and I'm pleased to say that Andrew Sheets, the chief cross-asset strategist at Morgan Stanley, joins us now. Andrew, fantastic to catch up with you, sir. I've said continually for three months there is nothing normal about this, but your argument has been entirely the opposite. It's more normal than most people appreciate. Why is that? Well, I, uh, thanks, and, and good morning. I, I think there are a couple of things that we've been following. I think the fact that a lot of the conditions that preceded this recession had a lot of very normal late-cycle characteristics in terms of what we were seeing with, say, the unemployment rate or, or the yield curve or, or valuations or volatility. We had a lot of very, I think, normal late-cycle dynamics. The way the markets bottomed in March uh, ahead of the data followed a very kind of normal pattern of, of markets leading the economy. And I think the type of recovery that our economists forecast, our economists at Morgan Stanley, I, I think are above consensus on on the speed of this recovery and, and how V-shaped they think it will be, that that will also make it look more normal than abnormal going forward. Andrew Sheets, what's so important here is how cross-asset does, given money costs nothing. We see Mr. Buffett today pony up a new obligation of $9.7 billion, $4 billion uh, cash, and a $5.7 billion in debt as well for the Dominion gas lines as well. Is that a harbinger of things to come? Are we going to see exceptional M&A, which buttresses this bull market? Well, I, I think it's a good, uh, it's, it's a very good question. I, I, our expectation would actually be that I think companies remain a little bit more cautious. It's actually, I think, consumers who we're counting on uh, to, to continue the growth momentum, because I think companies will be looking at, A, um, the, the continued uncertainty over the economic backdrop, the fact that I think for a lot of them, given uh, the strain that was in credit markets as recently as April, uh, we really see a focus to protect balance sheets, not take on kind of aggressive new action. And then you also obviously have a U.S. presidential election coming up in early November, which could also uh, change either regulatory tax policy, uh, trade policy, uh, the like, which would be another reason to kind of wait on this activity. So uh, I think for, for both of those reasons, we'd actually expect kind of businesses to lag uh, the rebounded activity we see on the consumer side. And still, you are bullish with respect to going further into risk and moving from growth to value stocks. What does value mean anymore? Well, I think what's what's pretty interesting about this market is that on the surface, it would seem like the equity markets have embraced a V-shaped recovery. And, and certainly, I think there's a lot of focus, a lot of very reasonable focus on this idea that, you know, the s and you know, trading at, you know, 21 times forward earnings, and yet the economy is, is clearly still very weak. It's it's recovering, but it's it's very weak. And, and this must mean that the market is discounting with these high valuations uh, an extremely strong recovery. And yet, you know, you look at what's what's driven that market rebound, or you look at the way the market's valued, and, and there's, there's rarely been a more extreme gap between what the market's paying for what it considers kind of the best, highest quality companies and what the market is paying for the rest. And so I think it's that gap, that extreme gap, 
that you know, and and this idea that the market kind of cares about is worried about valuation at the headline level, and yet has no no problem embracing many of the market's most expensive companies. We think that that those factors can lead the market to have a more balanced um, a more balanced approach, a broader equity market participation that would leave uh, that would lead some of the smaller and, and cheaper companies to to perform uh, to perform better. At the epicenter of this debate is zero rates. Tom Keane, you mentioned that money costs nothing. We should look at it the other way as well. Money earns nothing right now. And for a lot of people, including Mr. Buffett of Berkshire Hathaway, they've got to get that capital to work. Yeah, this is really, really important insight, John. And what's so important here, Andrew, is the idea that Dominion in this transaction will go right where you said. They'll go to a more conservative structure. They'll go to a more conservative dividend payout ratio, et cetera. What do you think of all the money that John mentions that Warren Buffett has, the billions he has, the billions the tech company has, the billions that private equity has? It's got to it's got to find a warm place, right? Well, I, so I think if we think about this from a, a corporate perspective, I, I think tech is a great example, right? I think you know for a long time there was some criticism of these large cash balances that many large tech companies were holding, and yet when the pandemic hit, that became you know yet another reason why investors favored a lot of these big tech names because they had these fortress balance sheets with enormous financial flexibility to kind of see them through any any scenario. So in some ways, that could you know reward or encourage companies to remain somewhat conservative. And I think we've seen the same thing on, on the from the investor side, from the retail investor side, um, where uh, you know we've seen a lot of investors raise cash in, in March as the the pandemic was um, was intensifying, as as markets were falling, and in many cases they really haven't redeployed that money back into the market. And I think there are a number of reasons for that: the the fact that you know markets rebounded relatively quickly, the fact that you still certainly in the U.S. clearly um, have a, a severe public health challenge that's all around us. But you know, I think for those, uh, it's not just about the businesses. We we do think actually on the uh, on the uh, the investor side, there are still above average levels of cash balance, which we need to monitor. But at the moment, remain a supportive factor. How much more do you expect returns to increase this year in equities? In other words, what's the full year total return going to look like? Yeah, I think it's a good question. I mean, we we are positive. We've uh, we've been positive, but I I I feel I need to caveat that. Um, you know, we. We do think at the overall level, the gains will be modest. That for U.S. and European equities, we're looking at kind of you know uh, mid to high single digit type of returns for for the S and P 500 for Europe. Uh, you know, my colleague Mike Wilson has a, a 3350 uh, target for the S and P 500 by the middle of, of next year. So it's still positive. It's still higher. It's still better than than cash. Um, uh, in, in credit, we see kind of modest spread tightening. Uh, I agree with the earlier comment. We think volatility can can fall, can probably fall a reasonable amount here over the next 12 months. But I, I do think you know you could potentially see the bigger movement won't be at the headline equity market level. It would be a, at more of these rotations under the surface as some more of the traditional early cycle things do better. Andrew, what we're seeing in the economy quite clearly are serious upside surprises, but there is evidence of scarring. There's reason to worry. Yet at the same time, I wonder whether this continued positive forward momentum, whether that is sufficient to continue the durable rotation that you're looking for. 
Yeah, I think that's a great question and, and something where I think we're, we might know uh, the, the case this month. Um, a, a big part of our, our positive economic view, specifically in the U.S., is the expectation uh, that, that Congress will pass another round of stimulus, will extend the CARES Act. And, and that's very important, we think, for supporting the consumer, um, reducing uh, the, the severity of that scarring that you mentioned. Um, but there's a certain irony here where there's a risk that if, if there's there's a perception that the data is improving very quickly. Maybe that reduces the impetus uh, on the government to act, um, which would in the long term be, we think, the worst scenario, which would increase the risk that the uh, recovery is slower and more prolonged. So we, one of the reasons we're positive is we do think that stimulus passes, uh, but if it doesn't, that would be a severe uh, risk to our scenario. Andrew Sheets and Morgan Stanley. Andrew, always great to catch up with you and the team. Been great to hear you challenge the less constructive view in this market over the last several months. Andrew Sheets there joining us from Morgan Stanley. Right now, we're going to speak on finance and economics and reframe for the rest of this year. We can do that with Catherine Mann of Citigroup. But far more importantly, and John Farrell, folks, has been really out front on focusing on China-U.S. I think he's almost got the advantage being from England and that he can look at China-U.S. with a different prism. Dr. Mann has led with our analysis of the international economics and codependency of Beijing and Washington, and I must start there this morning. Dr. Mann, give us an update on the codependency that we see right now between Beijing and Washington. Well, Tom, it's great to be with you again. Um, the codependency seems to have taken a bit of a turn uh, to the negative. Um, we had thought that the, the relationship in, as of January was, was uh, one that was uh, a, t- a tentative uh, truce. Um, but of course, things have deteriorated since then, uh, not only because of all of the issues with regard to the disease, but also because um, there's, you know, there's, some, there's some lack of uh, ability on the part of China to really buy all the things that the U.S. would like to sell. I mean, we've been talking uh, and calling this a shopping list for quite some time since back last year. And when we look at the items on the shopping list that the U.S. would like China to buy, um, you know, the ag is there, the, the energy is there, but some of the other products they're just not going to be able to buy. Uh, and there's certainly a sense in which they're not going to be able to buy in bulk uh, in order to reach those targets by the, by the time it matters which is later on this year, but not the end of the year. Dr. Mann, the heart of your research this weekend goes to the heart of microeconomics and macroeconomics as it's taught, which is finance is an afterthought. You know (laughs) the booming financial economy is compared to the economic economy, which is grim, grim, grim. How do we bring the two together? Well, this is, you know, this has been a conundrum and a really a puzzle, even for, for, my, for my financial market uh, folks, particularly those in the equity markets, who have been arguing that, you know, the, the earnings per share uh, that's consistent with the economic data is quite a bit different than, than what we see the market pricing in now. Um, there are a couple of theories that kind of would make this apparent levitation of the uh, financial markets make sense. One of them is that, you know, everybody's looking through 2020 to 2021. And the error of that, I think, is individually uh, a, a, um, a stock analyst can say, well, my stock 
is saying they're going to be, you know, be lean. They're going to cut uh, in order to maintain earnings going into 2021. But, you know, if everybody cuts, you know, your cut is my revenue. So it doesn't add up macroeconomically. And that's where the puzzle really comes in, in terms of the market. What this implies is that a lot of looking below the index at the individual stocks, this is what uh, finance people ought to be doing at this point. And Catherine, for economists, we've got to look below the headline economic right. figures as well. The aggregate numbers paint a constructive picture of a really nice bounce. Beneath the surface, this comes from Bank of America over the weekend. There were 12.4 million people who flowed into the labor market, hired 7.5 million people who flowed out, separations. Catherine, you look at the same numbers, the same data. How are we meant to digest churn that big? Well, I mean, we are in unprecedented times in terms of, you know, uh, the numbers. Turin has always been big. Uh, this, of course, puts it in a completely different category. Uh, what I think is a concern is that yet in some in some sense, there was a, a, a sector of the economy, the leisure and hospitality, um, many of whom the workers were uh, completely out of work because of the way that was shut down. Uh, but there's this second shoe to drop, which is, as I say, thinking about how are firms planning on weathering the next half of year in order to survive into 2021. They're going to do that by cutting. And they're looking now at how am I going to do that? And that's where we get a lot of the separations from. It's a different category of workers than, than, who, than those who are coming in from leisure and hospitality. I also think that, you know, in, in keeping with what, what uh, we were t talking about before, the levitation of the, the stock market indexes in general is, of course, looking below that to what the Federal Reserve is doing. I, we cannot talk about the strength of the financial markets in, in uh, absence of talking about the extent to which the central bank is on a supportive track. The next phase, forward guidance, seemingly, for the Federal Reserve, Catherine. How do you think that will take shape in the coming months, the coming meetings? Well, this is a real challenge because, of course, uh, true forward guidance is where you talk about it. That has the appropriate effect so that you don't actually have to do anything. So true forward guidance is one where the Fed says, I stand behind you, but then the market takes on its own dynamic in order to make things uh, appropriate again. This time, you know, the market has taken off a little bit too much in part because it's not just forward guidance that the Federal Reserve has provided. It's actual um, implementation of all of those programs that they've put into place. Now, back in March, that was the appropriate thing, forward guidance, putting in the programs in place, being ready in case, you know, there was another uh, real, um, you know, collapse in the markets. But unfortunately, what we have right now is a replay of what I wrote about last year, which is the central bank dilemma. Yes, they want to prevent a fire sale situation, which where the financial system cascades into a second GFC 2.0. On the other hand, how much do they want to contribute to moral hazard, which is things are, as I say, levitated. Um, and so any kind of de decline from where we are now really puts the central bank into a dilemma situation. How much do they really want to support Catherine. the existing level? Catherine, yeah. how much at this point are Fed policies actually bringing jobs back or providing a supportive environment to allow job growth going forward? 
Well, that's always a, you know, the, the relationship between central bank actions and actions in the real economy have a lot of different links in the chain. And what I can say right now is that the dynamics of some of the fiscal programs, the PPP, of which there is also, of course, uh, the Main Street lending uh, in, in the U.S. that matters. But we have done some work that looks at things like um, possible downgrades uh, from investment grade into high yield and then from uh, high yield into default. And we have worked with our, uh, our uh, analysts in those, in those two categories of asset classes and evaluated what are the employment effects of a downgrade on the investment grade or a default uh, in, out of high yield. And what we found is, is that you know, those are pretty, pretty big numbers, especially on the high yield going into default, have pretty significant implications for employment. So there is a rationale for the Fed to be in a supportive mode to try to avoid having fallen angels. As, as you know, those are, those are invest, investment grade that turn into high yield. Uh, and, and they had a particular um, uh, date put on them for the Federal Reserve programs. And then, um, and then the cash availability and the liquidity to try to tide over on the high yield. But of course, you know, underlying this, it's, it's gotta be the real economy that performs. Otherwise, none of these companies are going to be able to make it through to 2021. Your projection is that markets or cities have projection is that markets will catch up to the economic reality, which is bleaker than stocks and corporate bonds are portraying. Is the sense here that the solvency issues will overwhelm the liquidity solution that the Federal Reserve has presented the market? Well, the problem here is, is that, I mean, liquidity is important. But solvency depends on the return of the real economy to a pre-COVID um, situation. Um, and, and, and we don't have that um, uh, under, we have several different scenarios for the US economy. Um, and, and under a very optimistic scenario, the US uh, returns to pre-COVID level of GDP in the middle of next year. But that still represents an entire year where firms are not generating revenue along the path that they had expected. Uh, now, some of them have replaced that by borrowing and you know, issuing equity and issuing bonds just from uh, amazing issuance, historic issuance, in order to give them their own liquidity in order to tide them over. But you know, even, even then, uh, you know, if we don't, there's still a whole year where there's no new revenue generation. And of course, no one has a return to three and a half percent unemployment. So, you know, that that argument that by next year everything will be okay is really optimistic. Yeah. Really optimistic. Catherine, really appreciate and enjoy your insight, especially this morning. Catherine Mann there of City. We have been thrilled that the Lieutenant Governor could come in week after week after week and give our national audience perspective on the success New York State is having on lessening of cases of the virus and much lower deaths of the virus as well. Kathy Hochul joins us this morning, the Lieutenant uh, Governor. Kathy, I need you to give me an update on what everyone wants to know. If New York is responsible, unlike other states, when do we get the restaurants open? Well, thank you for having me back on the show again and allowing me to have this conversation with you because it's so important people understand where, where our minds are, what the governor is thinking about, what our administration is thinking about when we make 
determinations on whether or not a region can go into the next phase. So first of all, New York City, New York City is now in phase three. There was no pause. No one said you can't go into phase three. So personal services are still allowed. Uh, a lot of the, you know, the hair salons have been open, but they can do more services, tattoo parlors. I mean, there's just a lot of things that had been shut down in the past that now can be open, massage uh, salons, et cetera. However, the reason there is a delay in the allowance of indoor dining is that, first of all, we have seen an incredible spike in cases nationwide. We are also concerned about local enforcement to make sure that that is going to go in a very robust fashion in order to ensure compliance. And second, or thirdly, personal compliance. I mean, you don't have to go very far to see constant social media pictures of people people in New York City not adhering to what we've asked them to do. Now, the, the majority, I would say, are doing well, but it doesn't take but a small minority of people to flagrantly violate the rules to shut us down again. So that is why we are not going into phase three element respect to indoor dining. We've allowed the expansion of outdoor dining, and we continue to encourage people to support their restaurants so they can hang on by ordering takeout. But we don't have a to answer your question, Tom. It is just not safe to say that the usually smaller restaurants in New York City are very intimate, and, and with the indoor circulation of air, which is now becoming a more well-known phenomenon, what this is doing to the spread of the COVID pandemic and COVID virus, we, we can't take that risk. We okay. are where we are in New York State because we're I mean, risk-averse, and we're not going to do that. Well, that's the point. I mean, you go right to it. We're risk-averse, and we're looking for perfection. That folds right over into the school year as well. It's July, and we're getting into July to you and all the other governors of our great 50 states, the District of Columbia and of Guam. Are we going to get a school in September? Well, yeah, I don't think being risk-averse when you're in a global pandemic is a problem. I mean, we're not striving for perfection. We're striving to save lives. And we are going to continue monitoring the data as it unfolds. I mean, we think about the fact that back in March, no one was even talking about wearing a mask. Everyone thought if you washed your hands, you're going to be okay. Now we are understanding just very recently that this is more airborne than we had thought, and the droplets can linger in the air for a longer period of time. So, so we have to have the benefit of the ability to turn on a dime, to say you know, what we thought was right based on global experts, and, we're, and New York State is being advised by global experts, not just the CDC, who are you know, always having to question the motivation there from the president's influence. We want to trust, but we also have to verify. Uh, we want to make sure we get it right with respect to restaurants and particularly with respect to schools. This is not an area we're going to make a mistake with the health and well-being of New York children. And we only wish that the rest of the nation had followed our lead in taking extremely serious this pandemic and taking precautionary measures and enforcing the social distancing, wearing the mask, shutting down, but now coming back in a way that's thoughtful and based on the data, not just the emotion that we all want to get back to normal and back to school. We can't possibly say in July what this pandemic, the landscape is going to look like when children should be starting school in September. We're planning for it, but we're not going to guarantee it at this point. 
Lieutenant Governor, so important to be cautious and to care for people's health. There's also a question of how long this state and New York City in particular can last financially as things do not get back to normal and as people who have left the region stay away as things don't return to normal and frankly, as people are worried about cuts to basic services, whether it's police or sanitation, where are we on that front? There is a very simple solution. And that is that the federal government, the president, has to recognize that this is not a state phenomenon. This is not one hurricane that hits New York City. It is a hurricane that has hit the entire nation. And if they don't realize this by now, that this is beyond the borders of New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut, that the, that the rest of the nation is being hit hard, and I only need to name a few states like Texas, Arizona, and Florida, and you know what I'm talking about, that we need the federal government to get back to business, Congress, the House has been on our side. We need the Senate and the President to sign a very, very robust, large, and impactful stimulus plan to help support our local governments so we can help the states, help the local governments, so we can fund the very essential services you're referring to, police, health care workers, teachers, and not miss a beat. And if they do what they're supposed to do, we can. Re it'll help our recovery. And I've said on your show before, there is no recovery for this nation without the recovery of New York State. We are the epicenter. We beat it back. We've contained the beast. We are the role model for the rest of the nation. But yeah. we want to start jump-starting our economy. And we know how to do it. We need help from the federal government. Lieutenant Governor, the debate of this month, that's for sure, and maybe beyond. We appreciate your continued engagement with this program. bring in Alicia Levine. She is wonderful, just wonderful uh, uh, on the equity markets and really a more holistic view of what to do for it. Alicia, you have been absolutely wonderful at BNY Mellon on the idea of staying in the market nervous. How do you accomplish that to the end of the year? <laughs> Good morning. Great show, guys. Great to see you as always. Yes, staying in the market nervous. And that is Still, our message, um, it's extraordinary. Um, I think we're all scratching our heads, but the market is telling you you've got to be in it. And I, I, I listen to the Alicia. asset classes, and that's what they're telling us. So, Alicia, yeah. something you John? said over the last couple of weeks, and I think it's really important, not about the pace of the recovery, just about the direction. And I think that's something a lot of people have failed to appreciate. The direction of travel has meant a whole lot to this market. It means a whole lot to you too, doesn't it? That's right. So the thing is, we think that this summer could be a bit of a test and some consolidation and choppy, and that not least of which is that the third quarter tends to be the worst performing quarter historically. So when you add that with some of the news items that you three have been talking about, you could get that here. However, the direction of travel is upward overall, and I don't think you should be shaken out here. And you, you can hedge and you can change your sectors that you're interested in. There are many sectors that have simply have not participated yet. But the direction of travel for the economy is upward, even if shallower than we hoped two weeks ago, still upward. The consensus view is that this is the bounce, then the recovery starts to slow in late summer. And I keep going back to this question, Alicia, whether anemic growth in the future is sufficient to carry on driving equity gains. Do you think it is? So I think we have to separate what the support 
for the markets and economy are versus what the fundamentals uh, of, of the corporate sector are. And in the end, the overwhelming amount of stimulus coming from the Fed and from Congress, and we do have the fiscal cliff. As you said, we do expect something will be passed. And by the way, because the resurgence in cases is happening in the South, I expect that that next stimulus bill to be larger than $1 trillion because it's going to hit home for many more people in the Senate. And I think it's going to be larger. And there's, and there's an understanding that what's kept the economy going are the transfer payments from the government to households that have been out of work and have been affected by this and will be longer. So we think we're going to get that. And the Fed is out there having every single asset class supported. So with that, even if it's anemic growth, markets will be supported. Markets will be supported. There is a question of what companies will do with the fact that balance sheets on the consumer side are strong and their own balance sheets are flooded with cash. We saw Warren Buffett take a stab over the weekend. And then this morning, Uber is said to be agreeing to buy Postmates for $2.65 billion. Uber shares up nearly 8% ahead of the open. How much will consolidation, as Tom was asking about earlier, how much will that consolidation really be the hallmark of the months to come as companies look for any any advantage from an economies of scale perspective in this economy? Look, I think you will see a lot more M&A here simply because the primary funding markets are open and, and cash is available and there are going to be winners and losers. And this is the kind of economy and market where relative strength will matter more than if you have a, a decently growing economy. And so I think you will see more M&A and that is positive for the market. I think the Berkshire Hathaway news over the weekend, also very positive. I think that's part of the reason you're seeing the futures up this morning. That simply Buffett's back in. And if Buffett's back in, it can't be that bad. When you said uh, you were looking at your outlook and you said the economy of 2030 was brought forward 10 years, what does that mean in terms of where you want to invest? So what that means is the structural changes that we've all been aware of, whether it's retail or tech or 5G, you know, the kinds of consumer behaviors that were slowly happening, that were visible and creating some shakeouts, now have been turbocharged. So whatever you thought the economy was going to look like in 2030, we're getting it now and we're getting it next year. So it means that certain soft line retail is, 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 is probably going to struggle very sharply, and you've already seen it, uh, certain kinds of businesses simply cannot survive this going forward. Consumer behavior will not change entirely, but it will on the margins, and that's where you're going to see problems. I think the healthcare mm -hmm. sector is a huge place to invest here. You will see so much money and investment coming both at biotech and large-cap pharma and, and tech to deal with some of these, um, some of the data issues that you need to get healthcare right. That's all going to be accelerated. Alicia, will corporate behavior change? And is the thing that we're missing here is we're going to see an M&A boom like we've never, ever experienced before? So this is the interesting question, and I think this is where politics comes in a little bit. I think you will see an M&A boom. Um, there's not a lot of time left to get these deals done before the election. So I think, you know, left, left to their own, that you will see a boom. I think there has to be some uh, eye to what the regulatory picture is going to look like after November and whether 
certain tie-ups will be viable or not. But everything else being equal, you should see an M&A boom here. Yes, cash is plentiful. Alicia Levine, love getting you on the program. Great to catch up on this equity market. Thanks for your time this morning. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.